Hi, and welcome. I'm Kara O'Keefe. And I'm Susie Rigdon. You're listening to the Fall for the Book podcast, now part of the new Watershed Lit Station. This season, we're sitting down with writers across the genre spectrum, so subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. So Kara, I've got a question for you. Do you believe in magic? I think my answer is no, but that I really want to. There, there, there's something so appealing about it when you're when you're young and it's very it's very hard to let that let go of that when when you get older I think and I think that's one of the reasons I still write so much um about about things that are maybe just a little bit out there a little bit fantastic um and maybe just a little bit divorced from reality I don't know do you believe in magic I wish I was the Harry Potter generation I grew up with them and I was just thinking where's my letter you know, when I turned 11, but no, I'm, but I even find myself just like you now I'm, even though I write a lot of straight kind of literary fiction, I always want to put in this magical element. Like I want something else in there. And that's also what I reach for when I'm reading as well. Yeah. I I really find that a lot of fun in teaching too. Um, It's so, it's so rare that I have students anymore who want to write just straight realism. Everybody's so interested in this idea of bending genres or introducing something a little bit fantastical into their work. And it's really fun to just see the kind of experimentations that come out of that genre bending. And I think it can come in a lot of different ways. You can have the very up in your face, magical realism elements, but I also really love when it comes from an atmosphere that just breathes. Maybe, maybe there's nothing technically magical about it, but it feels magical. It feels like I'm there. And uh, that's what I'm really drawn to in the writing of Karen Russell, who we're going to be talking with today. Yes. And I feel like Karen Russell was really, really one of the first writers of, of this generation anyway, who was doing that kind of really major genre bending and experimenting and bringing in very unexpected elements into literary fiction and short stories in a way that, that we hadn't really seen before. Yeah, I, I was totally blown away by Reeling for the Empire, the story about the, um, the Japanese women turned into silkworms and growing silk in their stomachs. I mean, I cannot wait to ask her, like, how do you come up with a story like that that has so many different layers just in humanity, but also this fantastical, I'll just use cocoon because it's very fitting with the story that goes, <laughs> that goes in there as well. Yeah, um, a story of hers that I was just that I was just reading the other day um, and talking about with my students was from her newer book, Orange World, The Gondoliers, which is this fantastic story that takes place in what's called New Florida, essentially Florida after uh, climate change has completely ravaged it and and changed everything about the landscape. And and so there's this there's this kind of like eco climate fiction angle to it, but it's also a, a very fantastical story in that uh, the the central character has what what feels like almost a magical power of of using sound and and an echolocation in this new environment and there's this really almost mystical way that that she connects with the uh, with the environment around her so so there's this there's this fantastic blend of of the real and some of the very realistic fears we have about climate change now and then this this element that also feels like very magical I think that's a big part of it, this the sense of humanity and human fears and the human reality, but with something that allows us to really feel some of these emotions that are so that are so powerful. And one thing I love too is is sometimes with Karen Russell stories, you end on this moment of a question of what's happening next um, and a place where 
you might be about to move into some just completely different world. And my students had some very interesting conversations about that when we were talking about her, um, when we were talking about the gondoliers yesterday. So it was a really fun uh, story to be revisiting. And I feel like half of magic is the mystery that goes along with it. So very, very fitting. Even though we don't have a lot of answers to some of the questions that Karen Russell's stories raise, I'm very excited to ask her some other things today. So let's go ahead and get to our conversation with Karen. We are so excited to have Karen Russell on today's episode of the Fall for the Book podcast. Karen Russell's first novel, Swamplandia, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. She's also the author of three short story collections, St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves, Vampires in the Lemon Grove, and Orange World, as well as the novella Sleep Donation. Welcome, Karen. Hi, thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks for being here. So, uh, Karen, with your work being called haunting and phantasmagorical, Karen and I were talking a little earlier about how so much of your work is predicated on the belief in magic, the supernatural. Uh, And one thing we were going over was our own relationship and belief in those things over the course of our lives. So we want to know, do you believe in magic and the supernatural? (laughs) Well, Karen, Susie, um, I feel like it's not quite a straightforward yes and no for me. I I guess I... I do believe in um, in a kind of deep magic, but maybe when people hear that, what they're picturing is just like a, a Disney ride, you know, or, uh, you know, like a David Blaine. <laughs> I am. Um, yes, I do. I guess I would say I do think it's possible that we live in a world of natural law that has supernatural origins, but that's like a very fuzzy answer for me. I think the, I grew up in Miami, Florida, and um, one of the things I loved about being a kid there, uh, and I grew up uh, Catholic, and there was just such um, a matter-of-fact slide between registers. If you know, it was a really kind of syncretic mix of cultures, languages, religions, and also it was very possible to sort of move seamlessly through sort of like you know, like whatever you're, whatever most people think of as the everyday where you're like going to Publix and you're going to school and, you know, you have your mortgage to pay. And then there would be, you know, like a fantastic hurricane that revises the coastline. Um, So I sort of think maybe that's another way of coming at the question. Just, I don't believe in that there's such a hard distinction between the extraordinary and the ordinary. I think that it's sort of like you can toggle through different lenses, almost like when you're at the optician's office, you know, and you draw different things into focus uh, with different lenses. And that's one of the things I love about fiction is it sort of can foreground those things that are usually background or kind of humming on the periphery of our everyday concerns. And you forget how totally miraculous they are, you know, like touch seems very magical to me right now. So we haven't been able to touch each other for close to a year. Just the idea that overlapping nerves can really bridge two separate consciousnesses. I mean, that's magic to me. So, um, or ghosts, you know, sometimes people will say, well, do you believe in ghosts? I've never seen a ghost. I haven't had like a Bill Cosby ghost dad kind of experience, but I, (laughs) I am just always aware of this invisible world that is absolutely real, you know, like these forces that, you know, they might not be available to our senses or to, you know, empirical measuring tools, but talk about love in a body, right? You really can't tally that in a, 
in a lab, and yet it's probably one of the strongest forces in our universe. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like one of the things we were we were talking about is how you know when you're you're young, there's this very like hard line between like belief and magic or or not. Um, right. And as you get right. older, it, it it does become this this way of maybe talking about the things that are natural, but that we still don't understand yet. And, and that's one of the things that's so appealing about, about this kind of fiction that you write. Absolutely. You know, I heard Marilyn Robinson say once, and it really stayed with me. She was saying, you know, the humanities are articulate about the invisible world, you know, the, about this world that, that we can't really tally, you know, and the sciences, I, I, I love also, there's some magic to, to me and, you know, drawing the unknown into focus. So I know I spoke to a neuroscientist some years ago, who's become a friend and, um, he was telling me that what drew him to the sciences was just biological invariance. You know, he's like, this could be a chaotic universe, but there are, it's a rule governed reality. And, and it's sort of like his update to the just very basic children's question, like, why should there be something instead of nothing, you know? And uh, I love that too. Like this idea that, yes, you can observe the consistent laws of our universe. You can know them. I mean, that's amazing. And then, and then Marilyn was saying, you know, there are other kinds of truth that the humanities are, you know, responsible for bringing into focus, uh, that poetry is responsible for bringing into focus. And I, you know, uh, I love that, right? Like the eloquence of a poem or a song about something that um, you can't really describe another way. And that was her other beautiful quote that stayed with me where she said, people confuse descriptions and explanations. You know, so there's a lot of mystery in the universe. Even if you can describe something in scientific language, that's not always an explanation for why it's so. Yeah. Anyway, but I, but I will say, you know, I to, to be very frank, like I never have had like a paranormal experience. Fifteen, <laughs> where like the baby's levitating, and I never want to. <laughs> I, whoever, whatever's listening, I'm, I'm just not interested. Like, I'm. I'm <laughs> that was suspiciously uh, specific, there, Karen. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> Well, I, you know, we have a new baby monitor and it really does make you feel like you're about to glimpse something totally uncanny, you know, like I, I can't, <laughs> I can't recommend looking at your sweet baby in that um, grainy surveillance cam lighting. Uh, so, so it sounds like this is something that maybe you've, you've been thinking about for a long time in terms of, you talked a little bit about growing up in Miami and, and growing up Catholic and, and how that sort of informed your thinking. Has, has exploring the magical and fantastic always been something that you that you always wanted to do with your writing or is it something you came to like during graduate school or as you were as you were first experimenting with short stories oh, I love that question because it's funny you know I, I think um, sometimes I think a lot of what we call style is just capitulation <laughs> you know I mean I tried to write uh, I remember one of the earliest recommendations I got I went to Northwestern when they have a fantastic writing program there and indeed I was just writing all this whacked out stuff about you know psychic starfish and parrots and oh, I don't know, really kind of crazy stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I remember, I think my first story that I turned in for workshop, which I was like so proud of, and which was like, just like a tear. <laughs> I mean, in the in the side mirror, I'm like, oh God, how embarrassing for all of us. But it was about this woman called Leona the Lobster who worked at like a crab shack in Florida. And she just like, you know, and she was dating like a tooth artist who like painted these like tiny pointless paintings on his teeth. I don't like, it was just sort of like, um, probably people that I knew from Florida that it was not, you know, it was not even like such a hyperbolic story, really, you know, things are larger than life in Florida and in Miami in particular. And um, so something about the matter of fact, strangeness, 
I feel like when people talk about magical realism, they're often, you know, they're saying, well, supernatural things can happen. You know, remedios, the beauty levitates, butterflies rain down on people, you know, these things that are impossible, uh, you know, that would be violations of natural law can occur. And it's like, yeah, but I also just feel somehow like growing up in Miami, that was the register that Wednesday was narrated in, you know, like really shocking things would occur in just that same sort of like um, unselfconscious register is like, yeah, you're buying your groceries, you know, you go to the parrot jungle and then you go to the Publix or um, uh, really marvelous and really kind of mundane things coexisting. Um, So that is, I think what, I think it was sort of like growing up there predisposed me to love people like Marquez and Cortazar and Calvino and also Angela Carter, like the European fabulists, you know, Kafka, all these people really saying to me, Their Eyes Were Watching God was a really important book to me. Um, and although that's not, you know, that's a realist novel, some of the things described in it are, you know, both the horrific abuse and racism in that book and also like the wildness of love and like the incredibly, you know, biblical pro- proportions of this hurricane. Um So then anyway, now this is a roundabout way of saying that when I got to graduate school, I had a professor who was like, please try to write a story about adults. Just try, see what happens. So I did dutifully. And it was just miserable. Like I really didn't know how to make a story told in a, in a flatter register live. And I was really lucky. I think when I went to, in both programs, undergrad and grad, I had teachers and I had peers who encouraged me to be like, let my freak flag fly. And I'm grateful. And I, I really try to do that now when I'm teaching, like help people identify whatever is idiosyncratic and best about their own uh, inclinations. So I, I love this idea that you're talking about of, of letting these stories live and working kind of in the mundane and, and making that magical. And for me, with your writing, one of these things that that lives in all of your stories is the setting, which always seems to me is a character in your work. So, you know, I'm really curious, especially since your, your settings are so far ranging in time and location, you know, we're in Italian lemon groves and we're in the Florida swamps and we're out (laughs) West and we're in Japan. How do you approach making the atmosphere, the background, the setting, a breathing character? Do you travel? Do you do heavy research? Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really happy. I I think a lot of my pleasure is I see it now with my kids, you know, my four-year-old lives in a fantasy world for like most of his day, just imagining. And um, that's a real pleasure for me is trying to build a world that a reader can move around in. And so with those, with the early work, it really was just sort of my backyard. So I felt like I did do a lot of research for Swamplandia because part of that book, it's a kind of a, a family's coming of age story. And part of what that meant for these children is understanding the real history that had gotten papered over in this sort of, you know, they live in uh, in a theme park. And I, I feel like for many of us, even if we didn't grow up on a remote island on like a, a theme park, there are sort of fictions that you receive in lieu of, you know, or, or like a sanitized history in Florida. It's, you know, it's the, the big industry is fantasy, you know, like a kind of shallow for-profit, you know, Mickey presents fantasy so learning about kind of um, the Indian Wars, you know, um, the history of the Miccosukee and the Seminoles, you know, the Tequesta, like the, that was a huge part of that book for me. So researching kind of the real history of a place that isn't always available to tourists or even people who grow up there, you know, like I felt in some literal way, like a lot of Florida is built on artificial bedrock. Um, you know, we kind of papered over the real swamps, literal and figurative. So 
But, you know, yeah, I do too much research probably. And I think sometimes that can be a little bit of a danger. The internet is so seductive, you know, that wasn't true when I was in college, even you couldn't just call up a thousand images of something. You had to work a little bit to imagine it for yourself, you know, with um, that Nebraska story, I had gone on a trip to the Sandhills, which is this like otherworldly part of Nebraska, just like these, you know, cattle moving like black holes across sort of like pale prairie. It's very beautiful, um, but but not like an easy beauty. And it reminded me of the Everglades that way. It's not like Yosemite, you know, where it's like the big Thomas Kincaid painter of like crescendo of beauty. You have to kind of, it's a little more muted, it's a little more subtle, and it's it's also maybe a little scarier. But I, so I visited there, which was great, but there are other places, you know, I've said stories in Japan where I've never been. And so in that case, I read um, these kind of feminist uprising about these these uh, sort of early kind of labor strikes in um, uh, textile mills and Western style factories in Japan. So I do think it's important, you know, and I, I don't know that I was aware of that when I was a younger writer. I sort of felt like, oh, if you write something crazy, you know, it's an open field. And actually, you really need to be pretty rigorous if you're, especially if you're going to make changes to consensus reality, you know, to make it real for a reader. Absolutely. Kind of like my, my scientist friend, you know, it's like people, if they sense that there's not rigor to the world and it's a place of no consequence, I think they quickly, quickly tune out, you know? So that was a real revelation to me that even in an imaginary realm, maybe especially in one that's super whacked out, there needs to be something at stake. And you can't really have stakes in a story if you don't have a consistent rule-governed world, even if it's like an afterlife where, you know, presidents are reincarnated as horses, which is like maybe the craziest thing I've written. But I I mean, there still has to be, there still has to be something at stake for those characters, right? That kind of leads me to another question about about characters themselves. You know, I, I think in fiction and especially you, when you're talking to young writers and, and teaching about about short stories, one of the things that comes up is this process of character change over the course of a story. And I think you have so many stories where the characters aren't just changing, but they're undergoing these major transformations. It, w- one of the things I was thinking about as you were talking about setting was was the gondoliers, where w- where there's been this massive climate change in Florida, um, but, but there are also but the characters that are at the center of that have also adapted in a way that they they can almost like communicate with the environment through sound. And then I, I think about, you know, the, the, also the, the story you mentioned about reincarnated presidents and really <laughs> empire um, and, and the major transformations the, those characters undergo. So I was curious about how you approach those really big changes in a character. If it's something that you kind of plan out, is it something that has ever come as a surprise to you as you're writing those stories? Yes, yeah, sometimes I think, I've been really thinking about this a lot, Kara, just the surprises that you're trying to engineer versus the times a story rears back and surprises you. (laughs) And it's really the latter experience that makes me want to write in the first place, you know, like the moments where the story transforms. You know, I heard someone say it's like trying to ride a horse that's always changing underneath you. And I love that analogy. And then I would just add, especially post-children, um, also you change, right? Like you're also always changing. So it's all, it's a wild thing to try to do. And I think one of the reasons I like stories is because generally you can write them a little faster. You know, I've been working off and on on the second novel for what feels like all the years of my life. And it's been challenging in part because so much time has passed that like I've changed, the world's changed, what's interesting to me has changed, you know? So those transformations, those kind of like in the meta apparatus 
can be challenging and interesting. Inside a story, I, I knew I wanted to have these echolocating gondoliers because I was thinking a lot about how I'd read all this super bleak journalism about what a poor job South Florida was doing in mitigating, you know, these rising waters, these acidifying waters and these toxic algae blooms um, that I'm sure you guys have recall, like that, just like the red tide. And so it felt like the bill was really coming due in a powerful way. And I was just trying to think a little bit about, you know, like, so how can we be honest about the sorrow of that, you know, the grief of that, and also the potential to discover some new way of living with water, right? Or some new way of living with nature and that recognizes that we are nature, you know, that we're not separate from it. And echolocating is such a nerdy metaphor, <laughs> but I really love it. I love the idea of like singing in a chorus to map the world in collaboration with the world, you know, and I, I thought there was something so beautiful about that. So that, that one I sort of knew, I didn't know that it would also be about addiction and sisters and some of the stuff that I feel like I had written about before, you know, that kind of snuck in. I thought I was going to write, you know, something more directly focused on climate change. And it just, once again, uh, it came about family <laughs> and addiction. <laughs> and uh, yeah, reeling for the empire. That was, you know, that was a story where I was so um, lucky going into it because I had like kind of a, that metamorphosis structured the story. So I had an idea, oh, okay, well, I'm going to talk about um, Western style capitalism's arrival in this feudal economy. And I'm going to mirror this sort of wide scale change, the horror of it, by like thinking about these women's bodies that are now yoked to machinery, factory machinery, they're part of the machinery. And instead of, you know, all of these natural rhythms have been disrupted, and they're living on like the factory clock. And they're, you know, they're, they're sort of on, instead of having being individuals with histories, they're going to become these monsters that are really just machinery, you know, tied in all of their dreams even are going to like be fed to this machine. So that felt very Kafkaesque and, you know, and, but then that story, you know, the surprise for me with that transformation was um, I was just stalled for a long time in like some limbo stage where I'm like, well, they're not evolving. Obviously they're, they're just cycling through time as part of machinery. And then I, and then I was like, the greatest joy I have experienced as a writer, I think came in that story. There's like one paragraph near the end. I don't even know if the writing itself reflects <laughs> how happy I was, but it was just sort of like this woman discovers she can make something with this thread she's been generating. She can spin her own cocoon. And she's like so elated to discover that all this black stuff that has been sort of like gestating inside her has another purpose. And that she, you know, she just sort of connects with this creative power. And then they, you know, not to spoil it, but then, so then I was like, oh my God, yes, it's, we're going to get to the next stage of their evolution, whatever that may be. Um, and so that was, that was super exciting. I don't know. Um, I didn't know, I guess I didn't, I thought it was going to be a really dark story. I didn't know that it would have it. I think it still is. I hope, but I didn't know that there would be this sort of arrowing into the unknown that happens at the end of that story. And a sense of triumph, I would argue. Also. Oh, I hope, I hope so. I felt very triumphant in that moment of just sort of this woman discovering that you know, there's like a, there is like a factory uprising. They sort of take control of the machinery, but they use it to spin their own cocoons and they are metamorphosing, you know, they're preparing for some heretofore unknown reality. And that I think the gondoliers, there's a sort of similar dark optimism inside that story for me. I mean, we're talking about some very literal transformations here as well, but, you know, I'd love to take a step back and, and look at some other transformations 
in your writing and, and how do you transform your writing to, I guess, in a basic level, different lengths, a short story versus a novella or a novel. Uh, one example might be moving from Ava Russell's The Alligator to Swamplandia. What was that transformation or expansion <laughs> like for you? And, and, you know, how are you approaching your other works that way? That was a very painful transformation. I was saying last night when I was meeting with students, um, I just feel like I'm playing the accordion badly sometimes, you know, like just like stretching things out unnecessarily and then collapsing them back and truncating something. So I'm still, I don't, this is not an area where I feel any expertise at all, you know, like knowing, naturally knowing how long something should be. In my first book, most of those stories come in around five to 7,000 words. And I think it's because a professor told me you won't get published in a magazine if you have a story that's over 7,000 words. So in some ways it was nice to have like this artificial limit, you know, (laughs) like I, I think things have gotten like a little looser and weirder since then. And I think part of it too is moving from Ava Russell's The Alligator, which is, I don't know, probably, yeah, five to 7,000 word short story to this 300 plus page novel. I had this idea that because I knew that world and these characters, it would all happen pretty quickly. You know, like I was like, I'll probably write this in the summer. And it took years and many revisions, many, many revisions. I think the first draft I showed my editor was like 500 pages and she was just... (laughs) just wow. brave, bravely went in with her machete, you know, like you hope you have a hero like that in your life. Who's going to like bring a water bottle and a machete and just sort of like parachute into the swamp with you. But yeah, I, it was, I think it took me a long time to understand the rhythms of something longer. And I still struggle with that. I was talking with Tanya James, who I love, who's one of those rare creatures who can write in the short form and write novels just like with equal brilliance. But we were saying, you know, the to scaffold a novel, it's such a different experience. And um, like it was so, I'll just share with you that when I turned in that first draft, my editor was like, I had organized it in books. I think there were like five books. And she was like, I'm going to suggest chapters. She's like, chapters are an organizational strategy that have worked for many authors. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes I feel this with students too. You know, you'll have like, you'll get really excited about your own kind of like structural innovation. And occasionally it's like, oh, wait, but we have a great device for ordering a story. The sun, you know, it's like, oh, or this could just happen chronologically, you know, like it's... (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I feel like I am um, structure. I don't know is, is always my strongest suit, particularly with longer works, but yeah, I, and with stories, what I love about them is you can sometimes feel, you can feel the walls a little. It's not like spelunking into a hole with no bottom, you know, it's, and sometimes I have a sense, however vague of where I want to land. And with a story like reeling for the empire that I was, you know, sometimes you discover structures you know, so in that one, it was like the metamorphosis of these uh, human women into silkworms <laughs> that are, you know, that are literally spinning silk for this factory, this textile factory. There was one I wrote about, uh, it's called The Prospectors. And there it's like these girls go up a mountain and the story somehow took on the architecture of a mountain a little bit. You know, it's sort of like this inverted underworld story where they go to a world, the world of the dead on top of a mountain and then come down again. And so you, I think that's kind of nice to know too. You might find some some structures might be hiding in plain sight when you're writing something and they might come from the landscape of the story itself, you know, or from the movement of the story, right? Like the emotional arc of the story. And you you mentioned you're, you're working on a novel now too, right? Well, yeah. Although I feel like <laughs> shy, 
even say I've been saying yeah. that off and on forever and ever, but this time I feel like I did find a new window to Jimmy open to get back in there. So we'll see. We'll see. You know, Tani and I were talking about how children have kind of changed our own writing lives. So we're moving in shorter chunks now. You know, it's sort of like it's still a marathon, but maybe you just do like a chapter that's like a sprint you know, these shorter chapters. And I, I've been really noticing that in a lot of contemporary fiction, like much shorter chapters. I'm not sure what that is all about, but I've read several books recently with, you know, just two to three page chapters, like little bursts. And I wonder if that says something about how we're all living in time now. I I also want to ask you about, um, Sleep Donation, since it, it's been released recently um, and originally came out as an ebook in 2014, I'm curious what it's been like to revisit a story so many years later. And then to have it, I, I think it sounds like as it was getting ready to be released um, in a hard copy is when the pandemic hit. Uh, so I'm really curious about what that what that process was like, both, you know, both, <laughs> both going back to that story again and then seeing you know, so many parallels all of a sudden just like kind of coming into fruition in, in the real world. Oh, thank you for that question. I It was very disorienting. <laughs> so, so Sleep Donation was written in 2014 and it's, you know, this epidemic of insomnia and in this universe, there's like a red cross for insomniacs called the Slumber Corps and they come and take donations of sleep and dreams from healthy people for insomniacs. And so on some level, I think it was just my own like wish fulfillment, you know, like my own like fantasy at that time because I, I believed in 2014 that I was a very bad sleeper. And I mean, I am, but I think post-children, I'm like, oh, I knew nothing. I knew nothing about the true horrors. <laughs> I mean, in the book, I think there's someone who like sleeps for four hours. And now I'm like a stretch of like unbroken four hours sleep. Are you kidding me? That's like the filet mignon of sleep. Like, shut up. Don't, what are you complaining about? <laughs> or, or, and, or just being like tethered to your own insomnia instead of having to deal with like, you know, Uh, other people's would be great it seems work great to me now I understand like the mega bestseller of that remember that like go the f to sleep book that sold like 50 billion copies worldwide I I totally I truly understand I truly understand (laughs) where you're like I love these children I love my time with them I like dream of their unconsciousness and that doesn't feel comfortable you know I was just thinking too (laughs) our daughter I was like she's such a good sleeper and it's it's not it's probably not a good thing if like good is synonymous with unconscious but I I so this book came out and it came out with um this really cool independent startup out of his books that sadly went out of business seven months later you know their their capital disappeared so then this book itself was like felt kind of like a dream you know I was like what happened to that you know it kind of blinked out of reality and it was also an ebook so I never really it, it had this kind of unreal quality to me. And then Vintage said in 2018, I sold uh, Orange World, a story collection. They said, let's do let's do sleep donation as like a, a weird little paperback. And I was so excited that it would be in the world. And I also told them, you know, I was like, if we're going to do it in a new format, uh, maybe we can have illustrations. Like it just seemed appropriate to me that there should be, you know, like an illustrated nightmare appendix. And I, and just some, you know, there's like such a, dreams are so visual. And I do think there's a way they're non-linear, you know, like there's something so these collage artists in Italy who I love Ale and Ale agreed to do the illustrations and we worked together and in 2019 when we were working on this it was probably I don't know September to November December of 2019 and we were looking at the CDC website for inspiration because I wanted there to be like a fake brochure in the back of the book where you would see the nightmare contagion map 
and you would see like, you know, the jellyfish dream percolating in the mid-Atlantic states, or you would see, you know, you know, the, you know, that the dream of the gaze you've been avoiding is now proliferating in the Midwest. Like, I just thought there was something so dark and funny about this idea and kind of, you know, like what, what if you're having these symptoms report to your local sleep quarantine station, um, you know, if you, if you have like a recurring dream, the same dream twice in a 72 hour period, quit, call your doctor. Like all of this seemed sort of funny to me. And then there was this just truly insane two-week stretch where these artists went in, into lockdown. They were living in Paris at that time. And we were all, I mean, I think it was sort of, it must have happened to all of us, but it, it was right on, it seemed so distant. We kind of knew about the coronavirus, but I don't think anybody was expecting it to completely saturate the globe as quickly as it did. And so that was a real, that I think is one of the weirder things that has happened in my writing and reading life, was working on this book, getting ready to launch it, and then having reality pivot so sharply and then and then suddenly going to the cdc to look for information like the same in this you know in that same stretch of time and so i do sort of regret that i mean i there was a moment where i was like this brochure is going to feel so playful and i'm not sure it, it quite has the same resonance now you know the resonance has changed so much Right, right. The context that everyone's receiving. I mean, I honestly have no idea because I've seen it so many times. I don't know how a, a new reader would receive it. But I think that like, if there's humor there, it got a lot darker. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it got like nine shades darker. And and we're also familiar with things like a contagion map now or the, you know, it's, it's just a, such a weird such a weird thing. And the other strangeness is this book really deals with kind of this secondary epidemic of misinformation and kind of snake oil salesmen and false cures and just, you know, panic too, you know, the, the, this, this secondary epidemic of panic. And I think we, we live that and we're still living it. Absolutely. Has, have you found that, that your, your writing process has changed much over the, over the last year? Um, I, I mean, I know you, you talked a little bit about like how it changes with, with children and then all of a sudden the entire world's been upended and um, and so many writers are, are now home with small children and, uh, yes. and and I imagine that's just changed so much it's changed a lot it's funny on I mean on the one hand I think I feel very very lucky because I am able to be home with my children you know and I think about there are just so many people are hurting out there right now so I do sort of feel like I, I'm, it's okay with I, writing has kind of been displaced from the center of my life ever since they showed up. And that's kind of a beautiful thing. You know, I don't know that it was so healthy what, the way I was oriented towards writing before, but I miss it too. And I, there was something so, I mean, you know, I, you guys, I bet Karen knows this. It's so all consuming. And my daughter is one and my son just turned four and they're just, it's just, I feel like it's like the great honor of my life to be their mother. And I some, sometimes feel a little bit in exile from language itself. So I haven't been, I've been reading a lot because we're so isolated and that feels like a real intimacy with other minds to me. So I've been reading the way I did when I was like a teenager, like desperate to blast out of my body in life, you know, <laughs> I mean, like it really is like the, a safe way to, to, it's like a sanctioned trespassing. Like if you want it, how much closer can you get than sort of thinking the thoughts of somebody else, you know, dreaming their dreams. So on the one hand, I'm very grateful and I've been reading more, more fiction than I, you know, just hungrily. Um, and writing has been hard, I will say. And I feel embarrassed saying that because we're in a very privileged position, you know, like I, I have a really flexible 
I'm not teaching this semester. I'm just with my kids um, and I'm inching along in this novel. But I think it's starting to feel, especially with this new administration, like the sky is bluing again. Like so, like I've, I'm feeling like I, we were all under such a low sky of dread and uncertainty. That's lifting, at least for me. And that I'm grateful for that too. But yeah, I have some friends that have been amazingly prolific during this period. Um, I feel like a lot of my creativity is going towards like keeping our kids from falling down the stairs or like <laughs> eating the house plants, you know, so, <laughs> or, you know, just knowing what to do with this strange markerless time, you know, where we can't really go many places. So a lot of, it, it takes a lot of creativity to parent during a pandemic, doesn't it? Yes, sure does. <laughs> <laughs> well, Karen, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's it's been really it's been really a pleasure hearing a little bit more about your work and um and getting to hear what you're doing now. Thank you. <laughs> the Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Susie Rigdon as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org. Read on.